Now, there's much more that could be said about this. Um, and if you're a college student or if you don't go to a small group yet, come to our house tonight because I'm going to be talking about this for about an hour. Um, there are a lot of issues involved with our country today and the issue of medical ethics, and it's only going to get worse. And so pray for Christian doctors and nurses. Pray for Christian judges. Pray for the legislators. Pray for all the people involved in the Schiavo case. But be very sensitive that you at this time have the ability of speaking to a situation with a Christian conscience and with Christian love. And that means talking about the precious gift of life. And particularly, now you'll think I'm really wacko, the precious gift of suffering life. After all, Christians follow a God who came down to this earth precisely for the reason of suffering for us. And so for us as Christians to say that suffering has no utility, no good, no use, when we follow Jesus Christ, who says that anybody that wants to follow him has to take up the cross and follow him. For us to be like the world and saying that once somebody stops being able to control themselves or to speak and have interesting things to say, that they should not be fed. And the whole issue of whether you're fed through the mouth or through a feeding tube is a complete non-issue. Okay? And we'll get into this tonight, but I just want to say a word about this. If you read medical journals about the issue of nutrition and hydration, what you'll find out is a lot of the time the reason a feeding tube is put in is not because the patient cannot eat. It's because the convenience of the medical professionals find it more efficient to feed them through an essentially mechanical method than to have the patients and to sit there feeding them through the mouth. Okay? And in an awful lot of cases, that is the reason that a feeding tube is used. And I just ask you, when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, um, what's involved in that command? Does that mean you just don't take a gun and put it to your wife's head when she's stopped responding? No, it also has a parallel positive command that's understood in the negative command. And that is that if this life requires you to continue, this command commands you to do what is required to help that person to live. Now, that does not mean that you... Um, it does not mean that you owe them every extraordinary act. It does not mean that every medical thing that can be done must be done. But brothers and sisters, we're talking here about food and water. Okay? Imagine Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan with Terry Schiavo at the center of it. Imagine what Jesus would say about this. So now what I want us to do is um, begin our pastoral prayer time by praying for those in authority over us and for, particularly for us and for our homes, that our homes will be places where uh, people who... Um, <laughs> I have G.K. Chesterton going through my brain right now. <laughs> and what he says is, if children don't have to obey their parents, then why should the head of the house have to put up with a little thing whose diapers have to be changed and whose contributions to the conversation cannot be called epigrammatic. That's what's going through my mind. In other words, uh, people who um, really uh, don't have much to say anymore, are they a life that is loved 
by God and valued. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us a Christian conscience on this. Um, If you're not in a small group, the time at our house is 7 o'clock. If you are in a small group, the time at our house is midnight. Hey, I have a new clock. I wonder if this one will work. (laughs) It's okay, you can laugh. Um... I want to say a word of encouragement this morning to you. If uh, talk of Terry Schiavo and of training our children is discouraging to you, I just want to say to you, it's very discouraging to me also, and I'm over half done. Uh, I have five children, and of those five, three of them are largely gone from our home. And when I look back on my raising of my children... I am appalled at the absence of instruction. And I tell this to my children regularly. And Michael, bless her heart, always, she's not here this morning. She's down visiting our family in Nashville. Michael always laughs at me and says, oh, Dad, you do teach us. Well, yeah, they get the, sort of the, the things that just sort of fall naturally. But I do encourage you who are parents, be disciplined in teaching your children. All you have to do is go back a few years and read anything written by a Christian on raising children, and you'll see how weak we are today in our raising up of our children. So, And the other thing I want to say is, when you think of Terry Schiavo and you think of children and old people and all the people that our culture doesn't value, it is true that saying no is part of God's plan, but it also is true that Over the course of the last few years, there has been a definite movement in our country against abortion and the consciences of people. And this is an occasion for great celebration. There is actually a statistically significant decline in abortions in our country and a significantly growing conviction by people that abortion is not right. Now, how does that come about? It comes about through you with Courage and with love, explaining to people that a woman's womb is a gift, that it's not a burden, that what's in the womb is a gift, it's not a burden. It comes by Christians having children and demonstrating through the fertility of our own marriages that there are a few things more beautiful than a man and a woman having sex and producing children. Now, you're all blushing, but... I don't think you read the Bible if you're blushing at that. I mean, there are a whole lot of things in the Bible that are a lot worse, worse, worse than that. So let's have a real influence in this community showing the love that we have for all the people at margins of life, for our old parents, for our children, for babies in the womb, and especially the love that we have for our wives. And that's... That's how convictions are turned. This morning, I want to finish our series on Acts chapter 2. And I would ask you, as I finish this series, to please pray for me as I choose what section of Scripture to go to next. 
But let's finish up Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Would you turn there with me, and we will read it together. We've been spending a few weeks thinking again about what the church is, and the reason we've been doing this is that the decision to go from one large meeting on Sunday evening to a number of small meetings is a very significant decision in the life of a church. I got a letter for an email from Adam Spady, who was a deacon here a year ago, uh, this last week saying that he had been uh, very concerned and, and, and really opposed to us stopping the large group meeting on Sunday night, but that now that he's begun to hear what's going on in our small groups, our house groups, that he's very encouraged. Well, a lot of us have had, some of us, a couple years of debate over what should be done concerning Sunday evening. And this was not a decision that was made lightly. And so we've gone to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 to see what was the life of the early church like. And I want to read this text again this morning and then make some final concluding comments about it and its application to our life individually and as a church. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Peter preaching, it says, verse 41, Then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Then verse 42, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. Now, I want to have a word of caution when we come to this text, because there has been, as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, there has been, especially in this part of the country, and particularly in Indiana, um, about 100 years ago, 75 years ago, a movement called the Restorationist Movement. Uh, it's known by other names, uh, but it's a movement that really comes down still to us today because I think it's a movement that is sort of natural to uh, zealous Christians to go to this precise section in the book of Acts and to say the degree to which the church that we're a part of today reflects these exact verses is the degree to which we please God. Now, there is much truth to that. After all, I am preaching from this text. But I want to caution you. The Bible never says that those who approach it simplistically, and may I say ignorantly, are those who will get the best dose of truth from it. And I use as an example in this the fact that we all think whatever occurs to us at first blush in Scripture must be what it means. But let's remember that when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples thought he was talking about what? Well, being simplistic in their thinking, being direct, 
They thought he was talking about literal food. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't treat them like you would treat a two-year-old saying, oh, sweetheart, that's close, but that's not what I really meant. Jesus rebuked them. And he rebuked them because they were not working intellectually to understand the text. Now, the text was spoken words at the time. But for us, it's written. And Jesus rebuked them for thinking that whatever at first came to their minds must be what he had meant. In other words, food. And you can see how people would immediately jump to the conclusion of food. I mean, I'll, I'll jump there pretty quickly. All right. But Jesus rebuked them. And so when it comes to Scripture, whatever just first occurs to you is not what the text means. Sometimes it is. Thou shalt not kill. It does mean kill. All right. But there are many, many places in Scripture where we need to be very careful and work at least as hard as you'd work to be on the football team of South High School or to get a high school diploma or a college diploma as we do work to understand God's Word. Okay? Why is it that we think that things that are of eternal value will come without us even being aware of it and things that are of only temporal value will only come through blood, sweat, and tears? And yet that's how we think, isn't it? All right, now, what would I list as an example in this text of things that we have to be careful with? Well, let me give you an example. If you were to read this and you were to see that they all sold whatever their possessions were and, and, and shared with one another, and you were to think that this is a model for political life, all right, you would then be, you'd be at least a socialist, if not a communist. The difference being that socialists believe that, uh, well, socialism is not necessarily atheistic, all right? But the Bible is not talking about the life of a nation. The Bible here is speaking of the life of the people of God. And the thing that Russia did not have, the Soviet Union did not have, that this church had, is they believed the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, and when they believed, they were baptized, and they were what? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Karl Marx did not have the Holy Spirit, and neither did Stalin. He had a demonic spirit. He killed 50 to 60 million of his own people. But that was small potatoes when you're trying to institute a utopian vision. And what's the utopian vision? It is Acts 2. Don't underestimate the degree to which the Western world, in all of its errors, has been trying to implement Acts 2. If you go back to the Middle Ages and you read, there's a theme all through the Middle Ages, and it's the theme of apostolic poverty. And today, you can still file a U.S. income tax form and indicate on it that you have taken a vow of apostolic poverty. And this is part of the understanding that's behind so many of the utopian visions under which so many tens and, and literally hundred million people were killed in the 20th century. So when people think that they're presented here with a utopian vision that can be realized by the power of man and that 50 or 60 million people dying in order to implement it in the Soviet Union is small potatoes, there's a certain, you know, as Stalin said, you, you, you have to break eggs to make an omelet. Okay, This is a direct violation of Scripture because Scripture presents us in the context of the church where we have been changed, where the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in our hearts. 
And that is the only context in which people will sell their possessions and give to one another as they have need. And note, it is not saying that they gave to all the pagans in Jerusalem. It is saying that they gave to one another within the church. So here's another principle. This is not meaning that we're supposed to go out and make sure that the laws of, of the city of Bloomington and the state of Indiana dispense wealth equally uh, and everybody sells their possessions. It's within the church and it is to Christians. And if you go to the New Testament, you'll see again and again that the New Testament presents a primary calling that we are to share with other Christians and only subordinately are we to be good Samaritans in our culture. Does that mean we're not supposed to help somebody that we find along the road in need? No. But it does mean that we have a higher obligation to those that Scripture calls brothers, and that includes women, but they are our brothers because we've been adopted into God's family. In other words, there should be a higher love of us for one another when we have come under Jesus Christ and believed in the blood of Christ. And so... This selling possessions and giving to each other as we have needs. A, it comes through those who believe, those who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. B, it is done to those who also share this confession with us, those that we love because we are on the highway to heaven, not to hell. Okay? So this is an area where we have to be very careful in applying this. This is not a political or, or an economic utopian vision. This is the life of those who belong to Jesus. Second, what is another area we have to be careful? Well, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 15, you'll see something there. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 28. There's a conflict. It's up in Antioch. And the conflict is whether or not those who are coming to Christ out of being Gentiles rather than Jews should be circumcised as a part of becoming Christians. All right? And it gets so hostile in Antioch that they decide to appeal to Jerusalem. So in many of your Bibles, this section will be labeled the Council of Jerusalem. And they go down to Jerusalem and they appeal to this, if you will, um, this uh, sort of uber hyper church. All right. In other words, this some of us would call it a presbytery. The Baptists would call it their their uh, what do they call their annual assembly, uh, the convention. Baptist uh, is that what they call it? Convention. Uh, <laughs> we all know what the Episcopalians would call it. Um, Anyhow, they go down to Jerusalem and they say, okay, here's the issues, circumcision. And so we, saw, we find in Jerusalem that the whole congregation, not just the bishops, not just the leaders, but the whole congregation gets together, they discuss it, but there's leading of the congregation by the, the, the pastors and the elders or the bishops, whatever you want to call them. And they come to this conclusion, and this is what is interesting in verses 28 and 29. It says there what? It says... They wrote a letter, and this is the text of the letter. And if you go above, you'll see uh, verses 19 and 20 parallel this. But this is what they send back to them. They say, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. In other words, not circumcision. All right? And then it says that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you abstain from blood? 
two, three. Do you really? Do you really abstain from blood the way they did in the Old Testament? Are you convinced that you abstain from blood in the exact same way that the council in Jerusalem wrote the, the people in Antioch? And then, having asked that, how many have abstained from meat sacrificed to idols? Well, probably everybody here, right? But you know, in Africa, this is a very serious issue. Very serious. There are Christian women whose husbands are not Christians and whose husbands demand that they cook meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And the question comes to the church, should those women obey their husbands in doing that? Now, what is the, the answer of the Apostle Paul to this question? The Apostle Paul to this question of meat sacrificed to idols. Anybody? What's the answer of the Apostle Paul? Okay, who said that? Did you say it, Eldon? Come on, speak up. What's the answer of the Apostle Paul? He said, praise God and eat it. Okay, he said, praise God and eat it. Anybody have a different answer? Nick? Okay, so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says not to, and he also says, go ahead. And here in the Council of Jerusalem, it says what? Abstain. Now, what's the, what's the truth here? How do we deal with this, right? Think about it. How? Well, obviously, you can't come to it and say, well, whatever first appears to me or occurs to me is what is right. You know, you can't come to the text and say, well, it says food and meat sacrifice idols. So, oh, brother, I better think about this. When you see in Scripture three separate places where it's dealt with in different ways with a different level of intensity, you have some indication that what you're dealing with is God working in His church in such a way as to lead it on. God's work is not static. And you can see right in the New Testament changes in God's commands to His people. Right here we have these commands, but it's clear as we go on in Scripture that some of these commands are left behind. But if you go to the Old Testament and see how God works with His people, you'll see the same thing. You'll see God changing the ways that He works with His people. All right? And so you need to be careful when you study Scripture that you don't just think whatever occurs to you just right off the top of your head that that's what you should get from the text. Now, that doesn't mean that you should be fearful of the Bible, and it doesn't mean, certainly doesn't mean that you need to go to seminary to understand the Bible. All right? <laughs> and I can say that. I've been there. Uh, but it does mean that you have to be willing to put work into Scripture, okay? Everything worth doing is worth doing well, and everything worth doing well is worth sweating a little bit to do. As a matter of fact, in our home, when we teach our children to work, uh, we want there to be some uh, lack of delight in them as they work. Because you're not really working until you're not really enjoying it. I mean, you know what I mean, right? There are certain nirvana moments where all of a sudden it is enjoyable, but that's usually the last nail in the last board of completing the house, right? Now, what is there in this text that does have application to us? Well, I want us 
to direct our attention particularly to two verses, verses 43 and 47. 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And then the second half of 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. These are what I want us to focus on, okay? As a community, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, in other words, what we have today written down, the teaching of the apostles, which is the Bible, the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship, sharing with one another, to the breaking of bread or what we today celebrate as the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And then it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, what is, what is the root word behind this word awe? Um, it's a Greek word from which we get the word phobia. Now, I know that many of you are aware that you can't make the error of taking a word in the Greek and saying, well, whatever it means here is what it always means because context determines the meaning of a word. And I'm also aware that because a word has the meaning in our culture of something and because it has the same root doesn't mean that's what it meant 2,000 years ago. I know that. But I still want to ask you, Phobia. What is a phobia in English? What's acrophobia? What's claustrophobia? What's homophobia? Aha. I snookered you. What is homophobia? You know what homophobia is? Homophobia is something that I hope every single one of you embraces. In the same way, I hope you embrace bestiophobia. That's precisely the response that all of us should have. Esther went, ugh. That's the way we should all respond naturally to every perversion of God's gift of sexuality. I hope all of you have a desperate phobia about fornication. I hope you're so irrationally fearful of it that you take steps never to be alone with the woman that you love because you know what you will do if you lack accountability. And if you don't take those steps, my wife will find out and talk to you. <laughs> As she did a few years ago to a man who... Well, never mind. So don't ever let anybody intimidate you or browbeat you with the word homophobia. Say, I admit I am deathly of fear of committing any sexual sin against the holy God. And if that seems irrational to you, because they'll usually define it as an irrational fear of same-sex intimacy, you say, if that seems irrational to you, that's because your rationality is defined by anything but God who made us. Okay? Now, coming back, phobia. The word is fear. And so when it's translated awe, you know that the translator is trying to take a little bit of the edge off of it. But are you aware of how often in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the word fear is used to communicate the proper attitude and posture of God's creatures to the Creator? And even if it didn't use the word, it, prevent, it presents so many examples in bodily posture of God's creatures and their response to being in His presence. Think of Isaiah. Think of any time an angel appears. Simply an angel coming from the presence of God strikes deathly fear, man or woman, 
their response is to fall on their face. And always the angel says what? Don't be afraid. And so when we see this word, we should understand that there is something that is proper about fear. And I hope some of you have been in this church long enough to know what is the quote I give you to try to understand the proper posture of fear towards God. I always give this out again and again because I want you all to have it memorized. And I'll give you a clue. It's in the godly what? Does anybody know if so? Raise your hand, please. John, go ahead. In the godly, fear and love embrace. This is one of the most painful confusions in the church today. The church today thinks that fear and love are mutually antithetical, that they are absolutely contradictory, that you can't have a warm, fuzzy relationship with God if you fear Him, that the Old Testament is about fearing God, but the New Testament is about loving God. And this is absolutely contrary to Scripture. You cannot love a father who doesn't discipline you. And the Bible says that a father that doesn't discipline you doesn't love you. In fact, the Bible says if you have a father who doesn't discipline you, you're not a legitimate child. You're a bastard. All right? So Scripture has no conflict between fear and love. In the God, we fear and love embrace. You love a father who disciplines you, and a father who disciplines you is loved. You fear a father who disciplines you, but you love him. And this is the same way that we are to be towards God. You see the love of God being shed abroad through this church in tangible ways. They're selling their possessions. They're meeting house to house. They're loving each other. They're devoted to God's word. All right, And what? A sense of fear pervades the church and all those who look at the church. Now, does this have any application to us today? Mm-hmm. This is where I get excited. Does this have any application to us today? Hmm? Hmm? Thank you, John. It does, brothers and sisters. You read earlier from Galatians chapter 1. And if you were listening to Elder Huck Wayne... You heard him say that Paul does not start with the warm fuzzies in Galatians 1 that he does with the rest of his letters, right? And then you heard it. If any man teaches you any gospel other than this, damn him. But we say let him be a curse because that makes the Apostle Paul a little bit more acceptable to us. All right? But what he's saying is, I say it again, damn him. And of course it's understood, God damn him. And then he says, all right, now do you think I'm trying to please you? All right? This is what the text of God's Word says. Now, if you go back and you see a Christian leader is writing a church in Galatia at that time, and he starts his letter this way, there must be a problem in the church, right? And if you read Galatians, there is a problem. The work of Christ is being replaced with the work of man. And there ain't no way that we, working, can ever reach heaven. It doesn't mean we don't work, but we work because we love the one who has done the work for us. All right, so here's how this book of Galatians starts. Now, let me just ask, do you ever ask yourself the question, if Paul were writing today, the church in Bloomington, what would he write to us? What would he write to us? 
what would he say? Would it be even more warm and fuzzy than the book of Philippians? What do you think, the Apostle Paul? Anytime you read Scripture, you should think not just what is it saying to the people at the time, but you should also think how is it saying it to the people of the time? In other words, Scripture is not authoritative for us simply in the objective, uh, rational, logical progression of the arguments, but Scripture is authoritative to us also in the way that it's communicated. In other words, it's rhetoric, the argument intensity, the illustrations. In other words, Jesus is a model for us, not just in showing us how we should think, but in showing us how we should teach and talk. And the Apostle Paul is the same way. You cannot go to the book of Galatians and pull out of the book of Galatians an argument that works. The works of man will never merit the blessing of God and salvation. And then refuse to pull out intensity in communicating truth. You can't do it. Why would the Apostle Paul be permitted to be intense and to use arguments like, damn him if he says that, or to use arguments with, I just wish they'd go ahead and cut it all off. And, and we're okay with this issue about you know, how we're saved. It's only by grace. And then somebody gets in our face when we're violating the one who loved us and gave himself for us by sin. And we go, you know, I don't think that's very spiritual of you. You know, the elders come to us and they say privately to us, you know, we, we are very concerned about such and such. And we say, you know, chill out, dude. And the elders say, hey, have you ever read the book of Galatians? Is Paul chilled out? You know, or how about the text, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The man who sows to his sinful nature will from that nature reap destruction. Does that sound chilled out? What if it were said to you? Okay, what's my point? My point is that when it comes to Scripture, we need to see not just the direct arguments, one plus one equals two. You know, the, or I can't remember it, but the, the right angle in a, whatever it is, geometry, you know? Okay, is equal to the sum of the perambulator or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> we got a lot of mathematicians here, and they can tell you exactly what it is. But we come to the text, and we come to it for our posture, and for intensity, and for everything, not just the rational arguments. And that means that here in this text, we come to the text asking, what sort of affect should a church have? Now, how many of you don't know the word affect? All right, here's affect. Okay, that's affect, you know. In other words, posture and attitude and those intangibles, those things that words aren't used to communicate, but body posture and, and shoulders and, and all those other things. And a church has an affect. 
And what the Bible is saying here, and it's saying it approvingly, is that the affect that permeated the church when the Holy Spirit was present in power, and it was an affect of what? Fear. Now, was that the only affect that permeated it? No, it's not. What else permeated it? Unbelievable love. In the godly fear and love embrace. If you want to look at churches in America today and you want to not argue about music, but that's impossible, (laughs) but you want to argue about where the error is happening and where the truth is happening, one very good way is to ask whether this is a church that has some degree of balance between love and mutuality and awe. Fear. And how many churches in this country today can you go into and never, ever leave aware of what it is to fall into the hands of a living God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brothers and sisters, it's not a biblical church. We cycle people through here constantly by the scores. Look around. These people won't be here in another two years. You go out, you pick a church. How do you pick a church? Well, most people pick a church by the music. I mean, that's just the plain truth. Most people pick the church by the music. Okay, fine. I'll I'll come to that level. Forget the preaching, because that's really not even worship. You know? No, that's not what I believe, but I'm trying to enter into your mind, okay? (laughs) Forget the preaching. Forget the prayers. Let's just go right for the heart of it, which is music. And everybody knows with iTunes and the Apple store being open for Windows that music is the heart of our culture, right? I mean, look at your computers, all right? How much music compared to how much scripture? All right. So let's go to the music. And let me ask you the question. How do you sense in music the difference between fear and love? How do you do it? Let me ask you the question, have you ever come into a worship service and asked whether there is a godly balance of awe and reverence and intimacy and love? Have you ever asked that question? You should ask that question. Now, I'm not saying every single church service has to have those things in balance because, for instance, on Good Friday, probably joy is not going to be the predominant theme, although some might argue that that should be the predominant theme on Good Friday. But we enter into our Lord's suffering on the cross, and there's a sense in which that, more than other days, is a day that's very sobering and very very uh, reverential and very awful, awful. All right. Nevertheless, have you asked yourself the question of the degree to which the worship that you regularly take part in has a good or a biblical combination of both affection and love and fear. Now, you all know, because every time you complain to me about it, I won't give you an inch, that I believe in using contemporary expressions of music. I believe in syncopation. I believe in drums and guitars and bass. Now, if you go to my computer and look what I have on it, and I own the music, all right, um... I have a ton of early music. The Hilliard Ensemble. Unbelievable. So why would I have this hackneyed stuff? Okay? The reason is 
that I believe that we need to love one another. And I believe that to use the language musically of our own time is an act of love, okay? And I will not back down on that. I don't care what my preference is for music. I want us as a church to demonstrate humility and love in our relationship. But having said that, have you noticed how common it is in the old music from centuries past to speak of what? Death. Did you notice Rock of Ages? Death. This fleeting breath. You know, it's not upbeat to talk about our fleeting breath. Fleeting means leaving. All right? When my eyelids close in death, it speaks of nakedness, of death, of fleeting breath. Another thing, have you looked at A Mighty Fortress lately? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom. Why can we play it as a game on a computer but not put it in our praise choruses? No, I'm serious. Why? Why? Why is it an entertainment, but it can't be part of our worship? And you know the reason? Because we have lost the ability of seeing that in the God we fear and love embrace. And so what happens is Satan gets all the good concepts. We can use it as entertainment, but we can't use it as music. Praise choruses do not have the devil, do not have doom, do not have death, and do not have hell. Have you noticed this? Now, what's, what's the solution? Some of you will get the solution being that we shouldn't sing them, and that's the wrong solution to come to. The correct solution is that we need to write praise choruses that put back into the words what the words had in past centuries. We need to write praise choruses that have the devil and hell and doom in them. Okay? So will some of you do that? Look at the text. Look at the text. What does the text say? The text says this. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, of fear. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Not just everybody in the church was doing wonders and signs. Again, many people have made the error of thinking, well, if the apostles were doing many wonders and signs today, a biblical church will have wonders and signs. For some reason, I don't know the reason, and I am the son of parents who had my brother, who was one year older than me and had leukemia, anointed with oil. They were absolutely convinced that he would be healed. Absolutely convinced. They went in to see Everett Koop, who was our doctor, and told him and all the doctors and nurses that worked with him that God had healed their son Danny and that they would no longer be coming back to Children's Memorial in Philadelphia. And one year later, he hemorrhaged and died. All right? No one has invented laying oil on a suffering person and calling the elders in and healing. This is what the Bible commands us to do. We do it today. But also, I defy any of you to tell me that today we have the same healings that we had in apostolic times. In this country, it simply isn't true. God does choose to heal still. But if you think that we have the same proportion, the same percentage, the same incidence of healing today that we had back in apostolic times, I don't think you and I live on the same planet. 
And if you want to tell me it was because my parents didn't really believe, how are you going to explain to my mother, who two weeks ago was telling me on the phone, how when two women from her church came into her home to help her as Danny was sick, and they said to her, are you sure God's going to heal Daniel? And she said to them, absolutely, God has healed him. And she said, and then he died. And she said, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. You're going to tell her that she didn't believe and that's why her child wasn't healed? In other words, again, the text says many wonders and signs. The text says awe. And we pull away from this that fear should permeate our church life with love and affection. And we also pull away from it that because it commands it in James... Let them call the elders and have them anointed and pray and they should confess their sins. We do that because it's a command. But if you think that we're having people healed in the United States today in the same proportion that they did in apostolic times, you and I don't live on the same planet. I think you're, I think you're living in a fantasy world. I think you should watch The Wizard of Oz. It just is not happening. And God, and you know what my mother said? The whole reason she told me this story again recently was she was talking about this book that everybody in the Christian world is reading right now. And she said, so she was given a copy. And she said as she read it, she thought, oh, if I just do this, then my life will change. It's 87. And some book has reduced her to hoping her life will change if she just follows the outline and the, and the progression that this author has put into this Christian book. And she said, I do not like that. And I said, like what, Mud? And she said, I do not like Christian books and Christian authors and speakers who tell us that if we just do such and such, then our lives will change. And then she told the story of them praying for the healing of my brother. And she then said this. I said, I don't get the connection. My brother not being healed and, and Christian authors who say that if you just do this, everything will change. What's the connection, Mud? And she said, well, the connection is that we are not God. In other words, that God is bigger than we are. And that God maintains His prerogative to do what He wants. And no matter how much we come up with a flowchart of how the effective and victorious Christian life sh shall be lived, it just doesn't happen the way we think we can, you know, like a marionette, juggle the, juggle the things. It just doesn't happen. I mean, some of us still struggle with depression. Some of us still, after many years, still smoke cigarettes. Some of us still want to smoke dope. Some of us still listen to Mick Jagger singing Under My Thumb. Okay? This is the church. And the church is day by day being conformed to the image of Christ. And that must mean that there's something tomorrow he's going to work on that he has not yet worked on today. All right? And so the church is not all of a sudden snap perfect. The apostles' power present in our lives today. Everybody's healed. You got a problem? Come up. I'll straighten your leg. I'll do whatever you have, need to have done. All right. But the church is still demonstrating awe and reverence and love and compassion. And so that's the end. That as a church, to the degree that we're biblical, we're going to have small groups, house groups, and a church life. Not a bunch of people that live in denial. That's pathetic. That's an insane asylum. We are who we are. But a church that while living in reality and recognizing our failures and that my foot, you know, my leg is three inches shorter than the other one and, 
and that God hasn't healed it, you know, and that I have a brother that's dead, all right? And I confess that as an act of faith. God has chosen today not to heal many, many people. And God, that's his prerogative. And if someday he wants me to take out of my pocket my handkerchief and shake it and have all of you who are blind and Bob stand up and walk, that's fine. But meanwhile, he's not doing it. All right? doesn't mean we shouldn't pray anoint. We do do that as elders. But it does mean that we should have a reverence in the presence of God, a reverence that's sensible in our, in our music, in the way that we conduct ourselves, that there should be in the godly fear and love embracing. This is what was true in the church in the New Testament times. And the final statement it makes about that very church is what? It says, praising God and having favor with all the people and what? The Lord was what? See it there? The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if we live this kind of life, there will be those being added to our number who are being saved. Not those who are making transfers from other churches because they want a church where there's a combination of both fear and love. I mean, that's a joke. But pagans, when they meet God, will have that godly combination if they've not been gotten to first by an evangelical church that tells them they shouldn't fear God. All right? And pagans will fill this place because they've come to believe. That's our vision. Are you with us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts and for all the truths that it presents about the nature of the church. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who was present in power. We thank you for the many miracles and signs and wonders that were done through the apostles. We thank you for the love and affection and the selling of property and the sharing of money but also for the awe and the fear of you that permeated this church. Father, give us joy. Give us awe and reverence and fear. Give us love and affection for one another. And we pray, Lord, that this church will be filled not with those who are seduced here from other churches so that they might again have fear, but those who are lost and without hope in this world and to hear from our lips our love for Jesus Christ and our conviction of our own sinfulness and need for his blood. Father, fill this place with people who are being saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we conclude our worship with Christ is made the sure foundation. Amen.